All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast. Today with Jeroen Taas. Hi, Jeroen. How are you doing? I'm very well. Great to have you guys here. Yes, absolutely. It's a special one because uh, nowadays you only do uh, Zoom episodes, right? So uh, it's very good to be, uh, you know, seeing people in person again. And uh, we're in beautiful Amsterdam today. So as usual, kind of as an icebreaker question, uh, it would be great if you would kind of, you know, tell our listeners uh, who is it that we're talking to today. It would be great if you would kind of, you know, through your professional life, uh, go go in a storytelling way through the different stages and, and tell us, you know, what have you been up to and how did you end up where you are today? Oh, that's, uh, I can talk forever about this. But, <laughs> uh, um, let, let, me, let me start by saying that when I, I was 14, um, my dad taught me how to program. So he took me to a big computer center and there were only these huge mainframe machines and it was a, a, a console and he taught me how to program the, the machine. And that, uh, I think that kind of determined my professional life because uh, it gave me a, a sense of both control, you know, you can control the machine through statements, through, through language, if you will, and you can apply it to really complex problems and at that time you know the space to which you could apply was was constrained so uh, i ended up um, doing computer science in university which was kind of part of the mathematics department at that time because it was not uh, a separate discipline yet and uh, business administration because i felt that the biggest application is actually business and that that's kind of determined my life because i always felt that we can use technology to create amazing solutions for big problems, but also for mundane stuff like running an administration. So um, after um, I graduated, I, I actually joined Philips. And uh, at that time, Philips had the division telecommunication and data systems, and, and they had a big business in, in, in banking for branch offices. And at that time, I, uh, I had my own PC, which is early, I'm talking early 80s now, and I could see the amazing power that a PC could give. And if you could combine that with a, a bigger system, you could have both, both worlds. And uh, actually, not a lot of people believed in that. So the, the first time I heard somebody say, well, great idea, but nobody's ever going to use a PC in business. It's just not secure. And uh, that was the, the end of the story. But uh, um, and, uh, we started creating pretty interesting solutions for uh, financial service. So that got me into that space. And then I ended up in the US with Citibank. And um, uh, Citibank uh, gave me a, a great opportunity to run their tech lab in California. And, and this is mid-90s now, so I, I fast forward. Um, after you know, having lived in Hong Kong and, uh, and, and Thailand, I moved to the US. And um, they had a pretty interesting perspective because they were actually the first bank that said it's really about consumer needs. It's really about people's financial needs. And they have different needs throughout their lives. You know, if you're your age, you, you get out of college, you get your first job, you buy your first car, you you buy your first apartment, you start a family, you get kids, and, and so on. So, so at that time, they looked at it much more from what are people's real needs? When do they really need 
you know, financial support? How can we help them with their daily financial issues? And, uh, and that was very insightful because they approach it 100% from segmented needs. And then they said, we use technology to analyze that. So they were the first to create a large scale customer analytics system that, that basically would calculate propensities and analyze segments and then would translate that into you know propositions so and then they came up with this slogan one one click one mile one call and that was supported with the city never sleeps so it was mm -hmm. the first time 24 7 banking multiple access points they would recognize you everywhere they would try to fulfill your needs in a compelling experience. So they were the first ATMs that, that spoke Dutch to me. Um, so I learned a lot about really consumer-centric, needs-driven, and, and that then became to dominate how I looked at the world. And, um, and then Travelers and Citibank merged. So at that time, a friend of mine and I, uh, we got it to the point where we said we should start our own company. We just launched internet banking as the first bank in the world. And we had these amazing capabilities. So we started our own company. And uh, actually that's with Jerry Rao from, uh, from India. Um, so we became uh, internet uh, boutique IT firm, if you will, and quite successful, very high growth. And then in 2000, we had the dot-com bust. Right. So our, our Total business dried up in, in a matter of weeks. It was complete meltdown. So we scrambled and, uh, and basically at that time, one of our investors said, why don't you merge with an Indian firm? The, uh, these are guys that have done Y2K now. In 2000, Y2K is not, a, not an issue anymore, but they have a, a lot of capabilities. And we, we really pivoted. We became basically an, not this high-end boutique internet. We became a software company. And, we developed software, especially for financial services. And interestingly, within a year, we picked up the growth again, profitable, and, and started growing from there until around 2006 when we, we hit about 35,000 employees and we're, we're getting close to a billion in revenue. And then we decided to, uh, to basically exit uh, the business. Um, at least my partner and I said, well, it's uh, for all kinds of reasons, time for, for others to pick up this company. And, and that's what we did. We sold it to uh, um, EDS, which was then becoming part of HP. So, uh, and, then, um, and then a couple of years later, so I, I, I do th did some projects. I set up a mobile payments uh, company together with a friend. Um, but, uh, the current the the current CEO of Philips called me up and said I'm going to be the CEO of Philips. I believe we need to transform the company. Um, I also believe that uh, he didn't call it digital, but he said software is is going to be profoundly impactful. So not just to run our own company, but in our propositions. And he asked me if I could join and help him. So I thought I'll do that for two three years, and you know. Get, get it on track and then I'll go to my next gig. I ended up staying for 10 years. <laughs> and, uh, and in my last role, uh, after being first the CIO, then running a big part of one of the three divisions, um, I started doing what I really enjoy and it was strategy and innovation. So basically, you know, 
creating the engine for innovation for the for the company and uh, and executing a strategy of really focusing on health technology and um, then one and a half year ago um, I think maybe caused by COVID and uh, you know you rethink your life and, mm -hmm. uh, and what you truly enjoy um, and I said it's time for me to move on because my I know that deep in my heart. I love to create things. I love to work with venture. I love to work with young people like yourself, and and then basically switch my perspective from uh, no longer about my own career, but helping others succeed. Because I think I have a lot of experience and uh, and expertise and network that I can bring to bear for people like yourselves who who want to create something. And uh, that's that's what I'm spending most of my time on today, helping ventures. You know, get off the ground, succeed, get their financing, helping them with their strategy, with their, you know, their people strategy, and um, and helping them uh, become successful. Wow. Um, I think one question first. I mean, there's a lot to unpack, and we'll probably get through that. But you you went from finance to health. Was that a transition to health when you joined Philips, or like was it accidental, or was it? No, it was not accidental because. Um, um, as I said, I've, you know, for me, technology is a tool to mm. pick up, you know, address challenges. And, and one of the biggest challenges in my life was uh, that my daughter um, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was 12. And, and actually was a well, pretty impactful. Um, she had to be rushed to the hospital and... Um, Turned out she was completely dehydrated and her blood sugars were at dangerous levels. So uh, she had to be in uh, um, in intensive care for a couple of days and it completely changed her life. And, uh, and then what shocked me is how poorly the healthcare system is organized. You, know, mm -hmm. you have brilliant point solutions mm -hmm. in cardiovascular care, in, in uh, oncology, etc. But as a whole, it's Just really dysfunctional. And the technology is also not connected. So it's all discrete little solutions. So I said, this has to this has to be better. This can be better. I know it from the financial service. You can pay anywhere. You don't even, you know, I, with my phone, I don't even need to touch a point-of-sale terminal anymore, you know. And I can do it anywhere. In Namibia, in Botswana, where I was the past couple of weeks, I could pay anywhere. So why hasn't this happened to to healthcare and it's one of the biggest industries in the world you know it's, it's, it's a seven trillion industry and and from a technology perspective there is super sophistication you know like catheter labs surgery robots but if you look at the system as a whole it's really pathetic and why is that why has it happened? well there, there, there are many reasons number one healthcare is super fragmented yeah. um so it's many small, little, you know, organizations that try to optimize their own little thing. But the biggest is that the way is being paid for. So the incentives are not on the outcomes. It's, it's basically a fee-for-service model, not a fee-for-outcome model. So if you go to your doctor and you get a consult, he has... Um, uh, uh, um, a reimbursement code that is a consult of 10 minutes mm. and that's X 
and then he refers you to a hospital that does an x-ray because you said, oh, you know, you need to look at my chest and then the x-ray reimbursement go, why? And after the, uh, the pulmonologist has to look at it and, and maybe you have to do a therapy. So all these steps are reimbursed separately. And then there's a whole bunch of rules. There, you know, there are about 2,000 KPIs to control the quality and, and avoid fraud in this system. But it's overly complex. Mm. And it just incents people to do more of the same thing. You know, having an empty ICU bed is not good for a hospital. Mm. <laughs> you want to fill up your ICU. Having an empty operating room is not good for a hospital. So you fill your operating room. So the incentives are in the wrong place. And that, that's, that's essentially the core of the issue. Now, there are hundreds of other issues, but um, I see, and, and you know, any economist yeah. will tell you the same thing. It's just super hard to break through. Well, I mean, that has to do with, of course, the financing model, right? And yeah. like you said, where who bears the benefit is not the one who exactly. pays for it. Yeah. And as a result, we have the third And, the, and the one who delivers it. So you have three parties. Correct whose goals are not aligned. Exactly. Because you have the patient that has a need. Yeah. You have the provider that can provide it, and then you have a payer. Right. And, you know, the provider wants to optimize their their business. The, the, the payer wants to keep the cost low, yeah. and, and then the patient just wants just to get the best care. care. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're rarely all aligned. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that as well. The, um, you know, for, for especially for the past year, that's because I'm, you know, currently as well in uh, uh, building a venture in the health space. Yeah. And and uh, the question is whether that is so because ultimately it's systematic, right? As, yeah. we, as we said, the question is whether that is are you able to solve that because it's systematic, right? Because yeah. in a company, there's there's I mean, you can change processes. Right? Exactly. You, you can even change your market. You can say, hey, exactly. if they don't do this in the Netherlands, maybe they, you know, Kaiser Permanent is doing it in the U.S. I, I, I go and knock on their doors. Right, exactly. You, you could change your product, yeah, supplier, exactly. everything. All these, you know, uh, tiny minor yeah. elements uh, that make up the whole, you can change up, right? Systematic is, is, is a different it's a hard one. It's, it's a hard one, right? But, but peop there, there are people that, that are brave enough to address it. And, and, and in the Netherlands, for instance, there are a couple of payers that are, are saying, well, uh, we're willing to put innovation money to start proving that if you start paying on outcomes, if you connect different providers into patient-centric view, if you become more preventative, if you become more personalized, actually the costs go down and the outcomes improve. Mm. And, and there's evidence for that. And then the next step is, you know, how do you do that from kind of an episodic project to something that becomes systematic? And, and that will take years, that's for sure. Um, but but the system itself has a lot of inertia because people make good money. Yeah, and, exactly, you know, yeah. patients don't complain because they have no comparison. Exactly. Yeah, and, and ultimately, you you as a patient, you are you are basically kind of uh, you have no choice, right? You have no choice. There's and and in any consumer market, you have choice. Yeah. You, if you don't like Apple, <laughs> you should go to Samsung. If you if you don't like, you know. Google, you go to Bing. Uh, so now you may say 
that choice becomes too narrow as well. So maybe we should have a little bit more choice there because these guys are too powerful. But th that's another discussion. But by the way, it's also a discussion about systemic market positions and, and kind of how people can accumulate market power and, and use it or misuse it. Yeah, you know what? Uh, let me let me just rewind here a second because yeah. I thought like you know how how to structure this conversation. I thought that we'll take like three kind of cornerstones that yeah. to kind of guide ourselves by, and uh, chronologically of from your experience. Uh, so uh, I wanted to talk about that your your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Um, because I, I guess that that's been probably your most shapeful thing. I, I, exactly. That that's truly shaped. It, uh, who I am. Exactly. So let's let's talk about that. So I mean, there's a couple of things we can talk about, right? Yeah. Uh, one question that I that, that I tend to ask, which which is difficult to answer, <laughs> is um, you know, uh, taking num number of of learnings, right? Condensing that down maybe yeah. to three three learnings, right? That you would highlight. So um, I mean, nowadays uh, it, it's because of the internet as well. Founding a company, you know, it's 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 very it's positioned as something very you know cool and glorious and stuff like that but ultimately i mean it, it's you know it, it's just, it, the same principles apply today than they used 20 yeah, years yeah, ago or yeah. 200 years ago so why why when, when you when you were at that point to start a company why did you do it what was your motivation because before that you went into typical like okay you studied you yeah yeah I, actually I, I followed a normal career path exactly and and especially when i came out of college nobody set up their own at least I didn't know anybody. You, you went to work for, yeah. you know, Philips, Unilever, you know, Shell, you know. Uh, so um, I think for me, that, number one, it had to do with the fact I was in California. And it, it was literally yeah. in the air. So everybody you talked to was starting up something. And uh, so you felt kind of compelled to, to do something. Yeah. And, and then I think what triggered it, and that's, that's been a trigger many times in my life where people say, you cannot do this, or this will never work. And, uh, and, uh, and I think for me, the trigger was, oh, you have to, this new leader comes in and you're gonna report to him. And I said, well, I think he should report to me. And, <laughs> uh, and you know what? Um, I'm gonna prove that, uh, <laughs> that I can do it. So. Um, that was one dimension of it, you know, yeah. this sense that, that you feel you have something in it, in you, that hasn't really come out yet. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, I have to do it, even if I fail, then I know I failed. And if I don't do it, I will always regret it. So that, that was one aspect of it. Like, um, I think the other aspect was the opportunity I saw to be more impactful. So the opportunity, and, and yeah, I started with financial services because that's where I started. But I ended up with something that I believe is hugely impactful. Even at that time, I felt that providing access to affordable financial services has huge impact on people's lives. So we, we truly believe that if we can create these new products for you know remittances for immigrant workers to send back to their family if we can make it really easy to open up an account for everybody um, and and you have to understand that at that time in the u.s but in most of the world people who are at the lower echelons of society pay the highest fees mm. so you know you have these payroll loans 
exorbitant <laughs> price. You have people who have three or four credit cards and they pay off one credit card. Exorbitant fees. Yeah, yeah. So, so you could see that because people don't have the same access to, to financial services, they're being screwed, if you will. And, and, and that's what we, we, we love to address through technology. And, and the nice thing I always felt by technology, if you have something that works and you design it right, you can scale it. Mm. If you build a good solution for healthcare, for let's say cardiovascular care, and it works, and you have the algorithms, you know, it's ultimately scalable. So, and now come new technology comes along that gives you a whole lot of opportunity. Because now, once you, let's say you have an algorithm that assesses your risk for cardiovascular disease, you know, I can take any, and, and that algorithm is then constantly fed with real life outcome data. That means that algorithm gets better with every diagnosis and treatment. That algorithm is a very small footprint piece of software that can be distributed anywhere at no cost. You know, just like the payment networks. Once you have a payment network, you can come up with any type of smart solution that taps into, you know, the, the power of the network. So there is tremendous opportunity to create these things. And, and that's what's been driving me as well. You know, what, what, what can you do with that technology? And how can you scale it through that technology? And there, there is a reason why, why these big platform, tech platform companies have the crazy, you know, capitalization they have. Because it's such an incredibly scalable model. The cost of adding a user, the cost of providing a new service is, is, is almost zero. So, so the economic models go upside down uh, through the technology. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we, you know, let, let, let's talk about that concept of opportunity because you, yeah. you use that word a lot. And I also, uh, you know, thought, thought uh, a lot of f philosophical thoughts about, about opportunity. And then especially in, 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 in the case of, you know, creating a company. Yeah. So... You were, again, you know, talking about yourself in your case, you know, I, I think, well, if you say, you said it as well, right, opportunities everywhere, right, there's a lot of opportunities that you can, that you can, that you can see where, you know, you can apply something to improve something better. But when it comes to, you know, you personally, for example, aiming to start a business, there's like, there's windows of opportunities. Yeah. It's called them windows of opportunities, yeah, yeah. right? Where, for yeah. example, it's not just yourself. There's a co-founder, for example. Yeah. There's an idea. Yeah. Just everything, like the stars are aligned, everything yeah. comes together. Um, is that luck, or can you brute force that? No, I, I, I think it's always a combination. You know, you always have to be lucky, but uh, because there's just no way you can control everything. So that's, that's very simple. If there's one thing I learned, forget, you can control. There's more you cannot control than you can control. But you can understand the forces. And you can understand how to get the wind in your back or against you. And uh, So you can choose your co-founder. You can find the opportunity space. You can you know, bring the energy to a venture. And you can bring your expertise and, uh, and knowledge to a venture. That's not luck. That's... You know, a lot of it is, you know, uh, there's a lot of touch and go there, and there's a lot of iteration there. So I believe that, yeah, you need to have some luck. You you need to understand how the winds blow. Mm -hmm. But as a, a kite surfer <laughs> and as a wave surfer, you know, I know you read the waves, you read the wind, 
and you have a, can have a great time or you can get completely crushed <laughs> and have the worst time. So, so and you don't, you have no influence whatsoever on the waves or the width. So you can just ride them. And, and I think, so it, it is also a, a perspective of looking at how can I ride that wave. Yeah, I, I think uh, judging or feeling that timing or understanding timing is probably yeah. coming with experience, right? And, so and then, you know, if you, if, you, if you ride a wave, it's seconds. Mm. You, you're you're yeah. two seconds off and it crushes you. So <laughs> time, timing is everything. So you gotta, you got to time it. You got to have the right equipment. You have to read, the, you know, and that's the metaphor. You know, you have to have a right team. You have to time it well. And, you know, you have to go immediately start looking at the next wave because, uh, <laughs> you know, you're not done when you, when you, when you ride it. So if, if you say luck is a, uh, luck is like, uh, you know, everywhere, or it's always kind of like, um, yeah. alongside, uh, you know, anything that we do, uh, for you personally in that, in your entrepreneurial journey, what is like, uh, maybe, you know, exactly one one example of, of like a lot of luck that you well, well the the first i i would say I'm, I'm very lucky that i you know that my father taught me how to program True. and uh, i was free to go to a good school and uh, you know uh, so i was lucky kind of in the place where i was brought up um, um but I, I think as you said timing is everything you know you have the right proposition at the right time and you're lucky for instance for us when we started our company our, our you know we needed a marquee account so so i li i literally lived at jp morgan chase to win <laughs> that account i i did everything i and, and then one day you have your lucky break because a guy at the other side who says oh, these guys are really good we should you know we should give them a little bit more business and uh, um, so I would call that luck but it's not all luck because you look it up as well you you, you go look for luck if you will yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have to be prepared for right? yeah yeah that, that, that's that's true right so uh, you, uh, there's a saying you make your own luck right so it's like you also try to create windows of opportunities. Uh, exactly. right? It might take longer. I think so. Then, then it, there's a, there, the concept of persistence that comes in, right? Yeah. Because, like, luck, yes, okay, luck needs to happen. But like, if you keep, like, if you keep going, if you try to create windows of opportunities, then at, eventually one will come and you can like crush. Yeah, it and, and I, it, right? I think there's there's something there as well because I I just uh, had lunch with a um, a friend of mine who's the CEO of a, of a company and uh, and he's. He's launching. He's working on a couple of new innovations, and uh, and we were discussing. I said, yeah, it's way better to take a little bit more time to really, really, really get it right, mm. and and kind of release the pressure on, on getting revenue fast because it's really important to get it right to, to have a proposition of high quality that your customers love and that that you know how to scale, and that takes time. So, and you need the persistence for that because people will be breathing in your neck and say, hey, you know, show me the money, you know, <laughs> show me that it's for real. And so I think you have to also then believe in what you're doing. You have to have the patience. You, ha you need both patience and restlessness. 
And, uh, How do you balance that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, ba you that's that's the art. You yeah. know, I, I think it's all a big balancing act. So, so you need to be impatient in the sense that yeah. I want to see the light of it, but you need to be patient in the sense that I have to give it time to basically mature. And you have to be true to what you want to do because I see a lot of companies that I work with being obsessed with getting revenue. Mm. or users and I said I can see I call it model drift you know that's a term from AI where if you feed the model the wrong data yeah. it starts drifting and losing its predictive capabilities so but the same applies to a business model so if you start pursuing any type of revenue that's more or less kind of what you believe is in scope yeah. I think you're starting to lose the essence of your company so it's better to forgo some of that revenue and keep working on the core until that core is solid and stable and then you can venture out and and that's very hard for for a lot of people because oh i have this great new opportunity coming along and then i said yeah, yeah it's revenue wise it looks interesting but i think it will distract you from from what you really set out to do yeah but i need the revenue i said ah, you may think you need the revenue but that revenue can be less productive than you think. Interesting. So, you know, if, if we if we move up a little bit, um, you know, towards, uh, we, we already talked a little bit about healthcare, uh, but let's introduce that chapter with a question. Um, how do you get the CEO of a, such a big company to call you? Uh, well, by, no, you by knowing. <laughs> <laughs> Your network, whatever people say or, or, or do your network remains important you know that's why I don't believe in zoom you know yeah, zoom is fine for transactional stuff but yeah. but you know if you can look people in the eye you know, there's a lot of power in just looking people in the eye having an open conversation and you know if you do a zoom meeting everything is kind of regulated boxed in uh, you know half of it is fake so Including the background. <laughs> Including the background, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I think you just need that, that human interaction, whatever. And, and, and I, I believe it will remain. Um, in that human interaction, you have people that, that you start to trust because you, know, you work with them. They've been you know, supportive or they've been challenging you in a constructive way. And, and, and you see these people, you know, are, are good to work with and because I can trust them. And I, whatever you do, I think that remains a big part of, of your professional life. And, uh, you know, I've always been in my professional life. I, I said, I've, to be honest, I don't have a, a personal life and a professional life. I have one life, and, mm. you know, the way I talk to you, I probably talk to my kids as well. Or, so I've never believed that you're two persons, you know, somebody yeah. at work and somebody at home. So I'm one person, I have my beliefs, my values, my motivations. And I think the sooner you find out what people's beliefs and motivations, expertise is, their way of collaboration, the, the way you work together with other people, is, is this person out, you know, to make his own career and slash and burn, you find out pretty quickly. These are not the people that I generally relate to. Mm. Um, I tend to relate to people who 
generally believe in what they're doing. They're trying to have an impact. They try to grow a business, create a business. Uh, they bring energy. They they spread that energy, and and energy has a positive energy has yeah. a has a great characteristic. <laughs> you know, it 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 can exponentially grow. Yeah. The opposite, by the way, is negative energy. <laughs> it can totally drain you. So yeah. <laughs> so so these things are are really important and. And I think that's how you create your, your, your network. And then the people say, oh, I think this guy would be great to help me with this. Or this guy you could trust, you could talk to him. And, you know, what you see is what you get. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So from a, you know, if, if you're in a, um, that's a question again to, to network. Because network is such a loose term again, right? So it, it, like if you... When uh, ordinary Joe thinks about the word network, right? It's just like okay, some person yeah, meet, meet some people at a, a, at the cocktails. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's not network. <laughs> exactly, and and if you say and if you say so, and I, and I believe that as well. Um, so this face to face interaction, right, which is a completely different level of interacting with the with the human being, and like also, which is a completely different type of connection that is built up. Um, how do you? How do you think about this concept of nurturing a network? Because, yeah. like, especially for like for corporate people, which I've observed, is like that if they spend a lot of time only in like uh, their corporate lane, right? That's yeah. also their entire network revolves around that. Yeah. Like, how do you how well, do you think about the concept of nurturing? I guess it also depends on different stages and and shoes yeah. and hats that you put on. But like, how do you? No, think uh, I I th I think everybody has to determine it for themselves. So, you know, the ultimate question is always you know is it impactful what i'm doing how can i make it impactful who can support me in this and, and who are the people that i would love to work with because i respect them i and uh, i i think just like you think about your own career or your own business you always have to step back and say okay am i doing the right things am i doing it with the right people should i expand my uh, my scope so there is definitely a conscious mm -hmm. part to it. But there is also another part that, that you need to have, I believe, a natural curiosity about people. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're interested in what other people think mm -hmm. and what they say, it's way easier than when you make a transactional, oh you know, I'm gonna talk to Rush because I can yeah. I think he can help me get yeah. access to A, B and C. Right. Then yeah. you're already on the wrong track from my perspective. You know, if everything goes well, it comes at the end because mm -hmm. people trust you and you have a relationship and they will do something for you. And and that's another purely human thing, you know. Um, and uh, people tend to be willing to help each other. So, <laughs> and, and it's amazing if you ask for help, I would say 90% yeah. of the time you get it. <laughs> we, we're just afraid to ask for help. <laughs> so uh, I, I think the human aspect and the genuine, uh, the genuine relationships mm. are usually important. Not transactional. I don't. Transactional relationships. I are, really appreciate are, are, you saying that because in business often, I mean, it also depends on the business culture. Yeah. Right. In certain countries, it's more transactional. In certain countries, I yeah. mean, you've worked a lot with the East. I think there is a yeah. bit of a difference between East and West. Yeah. About building, you know, there was one thing which stood out for me. In the West, we have very thick contracts and very thin trust. Yeah. In the East, we have very thin contracts and thick trust yeah but but there's uh, you know obviously it shouldn't degenerate into you know uh, shades of corruption but <laughs> but, but the, the, yeah. the, con the concept of spending time to trust somebody yeah. 
the concept of you know knowing that you're there to help each other um you, you know the american culture is extremely transactional yeah extremely money driven um japan on the on the other side really driven on you know trust and right. understanding and, and and some cultures are are in between you know chinese can be hugely transactional <laughs> but uh, and and it's interesting because I, I i personally like the model of a thing contract and based on a, a strong foundation of trust um uh and it but you know it's not efficient uh, yeah. <laughs> because it takes time Correct. it, uh, it yeah. takes nurturing as you say yeah uh, so but ultimately it pays off so it's it's for me it's kind of a short-term long-term thing yeah you know, short term is tra you can be transactional. You can meet somebody at a cocktail bar and say, hey, "Here's my card, and let's talk," <laughs> or you can say, "Okay, I take a little bit more time. I'll spend more time, and then there's something. I'm out to create something that's more profound, that uh, that will carry me through, you know, a couple of years." And and you know, I'm more of the latter school, yeah. although I, I know you you have to yeah. do transactional stuff as well yeah good um so you, you said um you, you you thought you will stick around for two three years and then it became a decade uh so how did you so because you know exiting a business is, is, a, is, a, is a huge huge uh, change in life right um how how did you make your decision what what was how did you why did you say like okay i'm gonna do this because uh you know Obviously, you thought about like all the pros and cons, you know, and uh, you would you were not in a position to do so, right? You could have chosen all the other things. Yeah, or exactly that. And and these are these are difficult choices, you know. You you basically say, okay, I, I love my work. I you know, at Philips, I, I had an opportunity to, to create things that I felt were impactful. And and at some point, you know, you reach a point where you say, ah. Oh, you know what, maybe I can be more impactful w working with ventures, working with young people, you know, bringing my experience to, to people that are on the verge of creating something. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I consciously decided. And, you know, I'm at an age where I really don't care about what, what how people look at me in terms <laughs> of, you know, stature or whatever. That's a good you place know. to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really... What can I contribute? How can I can? Uh, how can I create something? So, I, I for myself I said for the four eyes I called it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I thought long about it. So, hey, whatever I do, it has to be impactful. Mm -hmm. So basically, make it a better world. And, you know, in health technology, you can find it, but there are many other spaces: energy, green technology, etc. So there are many places where you can truly contribute to let's say a better society better planet etc so number one so no i'm no no longer interested in money at all um secondly i need to have influence so you know people don't want to listen to me i move on <laughs> so i need to have influence otherwise what's your contribution to uh, to the impact um then it should be inspirational and i get a lot of inspiration from you know people like yourselves energetic young creating something i, I love raw energy if you will <laughs> and then lastly it has to be intellectually challenging so you know cracking complex stuff and i felt if it fulfills these criteria i typically 
thoroughly enjoy it. So, uh, and and that's that's the only criteria. You know, there's quite a bunch of things that come away. I hold the four criteria against it, and I say yes or no. And when did you come up with those four? That was actually true when I started. I, I said I, I don't want to continue in my my current role, you know. And I, again, I think it was triggered by COVID. You know, you start, you you're more forced to think about your life and what you want to get out of life. And then I said, what what's really important to me? What you know, what makes me yeah, excited? And, and, and I think that aligns with what you talked about energy. I often think of not time management but energy management. Yeah. Because time is a constant. Time yeah. is you get 24 hours. Yeah. But there are days you can wake up and the whole day you feel like, what have I even done? Even though yeah. you get 24 hours. And yeah. Some days you do so many things, yet you still have capacity to do more. Yeah. And that's about energy because that's, yeah, the, yeah. Optimize, that's the part that you can't optimize. And, I, and you know, and, and it's the kind of thing you're truly in, in this energy flow where, yeah. where you think things are starting to fall in place, you know. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I'm seeking. There's two, two kind of things that I would like to cover with you. It's uh, getting back to the you know technology and venture side of things, especially I want to connect them both. So the, the two things, the one that you're doing right now and, and what you did before as, uh, at, at Philips, um, the innovation part of things. You, you've lived in the U.S., you've worked in the U.S., you've been to, especially probably with Philips, and a lot of these you know ecosystems where technology is being developed, etc., Let's talk about the differences between them. And yeah. especially, you know, let's say, because we're in Amsterdam, we're in Europe right now, yeah. let's benchmark ourselves against other things and, and talk about... The more the venture how, scene? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. how you see it? What's, what's, your, what's your take on it? In um, the health space, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think clearly the, the venture scene in the U.S. Is, is by far the most sophisticated in the world. And uh, there's also a whole lot of money because, you know, we have this the wave culture. of companies that... That became successful where the founders put uh, put their newly earned money into other ventures. They they're supporting people that find you know. There's a reason why the Bay Area is is such a big hub. And it's funny when I I told you my son works for Notion and he joined them uh, two years back. And so I said, oh, interesting company. And uh, I said, let me guess. Um, the founders probably Indian or Chinese. <laughs> he said, "Well, the founders are an Indian and a Chinese, <laughs> and, and and they were both one born in India and one yeah. born in China, yeah. and they came to the U.S. to study. So they had the opportunity to. I think both of them went to Stanford. Forty percent of ventures in U.S. are foreign. Uh, yeah, founders. But but that tells you something that it, you attract the best talent from anywhere. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of money that goes around. Clearly, technology is the driver for most of the future value creation. You know, I'm on the board of an AI company, and uh, uh, I love working with these guys. Um, if I look at, at, at the stuff they're working on, I can see that a big part of, of future value generation will come from what they're doing with, with data and the algorithms they create. And I think the US, you know, these are also, by the way, Indian founders that are now based in Boston mm. and run their business out of the US because it's the most fertile uh, environment to, to start something. And not, another good example is Israel, you know, tiny country, uh, but amazing the kind of innovation and the venture seat now. There's, of course, a very strong link between Israel and the U.S. So, um, 
so for instance, a lot of the, the propositions are developed in Israel and then very quickly, you know, transplanted to uh, to the US. There is a, a venture connection there. There's a money connection there. There's a channel connection there. And uh, I think increasingly with India, I, I see India has, a, has a, now India is the country that always has this huge potential that, that never really materialized. For the last 20 years you've been <laughs> yeah, hearing yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I think it's happening. You know, if you just look at who are leading the big tech companies in the U.S., uh, you know, most of them are, are Indian, and they're not U.S. Indians. They were born in India and, and, and came to the U.S. But the thing with Indians, they generally seem to do better once they're outside India. <laughs> yeah, that, and, and that's that's true because the environment in India exactly. is not as conducive, but that's changing. I'm an uh, advisor to an Indian venture fund, and... Uh, it's quite amazing what's going on I mean, there. If you're talking about scale, yeah. then there's not many markets yeah. that compete that. Yeah. So um, I also see, you know, India also has this this opportunity to address scale and talent because it's you know huge talent pool. Now Europe is is obviously everything is a little bit more rigid here. <laughs> Um, more traditional. More traditional. Yeah. It's more grounded also in, in, in the, the local cultures. You know, the difference between Germany and Holland are still pretty pronounced. And, and these are kind of minor between, for instance, Holland and Spain. Mm. Yeah, or Greece, to, <laughs> to mention an outpost here. But um, so I think on the one hand, Europe has everything. You know, it has the infrastructure, the talent, the money. On the other hand, it kind of lacks the big thinking. Mm. And uh, so everything is, is quickly reduced to smaller scale. And, and you see that with the way they allocate, for instance, you know, innovation investments. It doesn't go to a couple of big, high-promising opportunities. It goes to 2,000 little projects where everybody's reinventing the wheel. Instead of saying, hey, let's think platforms, infrastructure, and then let small companies or emerging companies thrive on that, um, it's, it's kind of quickly fragmented, fragmented into countries, fragmented into little businesses. And healthcare is the best example. Give me an example of one big healthcare organization, hmm. a healthcare delivery organization. Wanted to say Philips. <laughs> no, no, there's no, a technology, no, but a delivery not organization. A delivery, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, they're yeah. all relatively small scale. But do you think it is a particularly European issue, or is it just a matter of time? I mean, Europe had its time of being global and visionary, or it's just you know every, I mean, dynasty in a way has its timing, right? Yeah, I mean, Europe is not one place to start with. It's really not one place. It will never be one place. Um, but it has, you know, the biggest. It, it 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 has the biggest uh, sustainable impact on the world, and uh, but from a business perspective, it hasn't really materialized into, you know, European big tech companies, mm. for instance, because they're bound by regulation and tradition. 
you know, local stuff. They're not bound by, okay, we have a market of 350 million people that all speak the same language, that's yeah, exactly. regulatory similar, where people spend try. money, exactly. uh, yeah. where competition is yeah. ingrained. Yeah. Or China, that's now doing the same thing in, in a very short time yeah. span. If you think of the first time I went to China was in uh, 1983. Now, I, 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 different country. Oh, completely different. Yeah. People were still wearing the Mao suits, they were on bicycles. <laughs> and, you know, you were in a time warp. Yeah, and yeah. now you go to Shanghai, you, know, you, you yeah. feel the rest of the world is in the, the, the time they're, warp. They're, 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 <laughs> yeah. they're flying with a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's nothing short of amazing what, what happened there. And, you know, yeah, there's a price to it, clearly. And, uh, uh, but you know, it's very hard to, to kind of make these comparisons. You know, I love Europe. I love Amsterdam. And, and Amsterdam at one time was exactly. the greatest city yeah. in the world. You know, the time these houses were, were built, you know, my house built in 1630, um, Amsterdam was... The, the most impactful, the most powerful city in the world because they embraced business. Yeah. They created innovation, a lot of financial innovation, stock the first market. stock market, exactly. stock holdings, yeah. insurance, yeah. but also shipbuilding, um, the science around uh, cartography, cartography exactly, yeah. um, um, you know, a level of planning, but not tight planning because if you look around at all these houses here you look out of the window every house is different Slightly, so yeah. so you still have an individual approach to things but the whole works so they had the right balance between yeah you can build here and this is the space you can build in there are a couple of rules but everything else That's you can decide how you want to do game, it but still there was enough flexibility with exactly it. Yeah. exactly of course there are rules because as a society well, you, you need 400 rules. years later this house yeah. wouldn't have been here. but but what i think what made amsterdam for what it was was also your know, window of opportunity because the huguenots got kicked out of france the uh the Protestants were kicked out of Antwerp, the Jews were kicked out of Iberia, and Amsterdam said, you know, why Everybody don't you come here and yeah. bring your money and bring your yeah. connections and bring your skills? You're welcome. Again, it was uh, a melting pot of that yeah. time. And then New York became the same because it was New Amsterdam. So uh, it was kind of a similar was a bad deal culture. When it came to giving it to the British? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but if you look deep into the culture of New York, you recognize the similarities yeah. with Amsterdam. You know, this kind of a, yeah, there are rules, but it's also, there's a lot of energy, it's open, there's all these nationalities yeah. that come together and find a way to, to work together, to live together. That, that's amazing. And... You know, I, I personally don't believe in monocultures, you know. <laughs> uh, that, that's why I'm, you know, I just don't believe in the Orbans and the, the Putins and, uh, you know, Le Pens, uh, yeah. people that say, oh, we need our, our white uh, society. I, I think you, you shoot yourself in the foot, you miss something great. And, and that greatness I've seen here in Amsterdam, but in New York, in San Francisco. Yeah. So all these places are wide open. You know, Israel's successful because Jews from all over the world came there, brought their trade, brought their expertise, and brought their connections. Exactly. Because yeah. they had banking friends in London and New York. They yeah. had tech friends in San Francisco. And, and it's all built on a, on, on a core network of 
people that trust each other, know each other, and, and work together. The last thing I can, that we can end the note on is, is, is so you said you're right now you're in the spot where you want to support uh, young people that, that have ideas that they're pursuing with, with your experience in your network. What are some of the things, you know, that you're excited about uh, right now? You know, you already mentioned that you're on the board of a bunch of companies yeah. all over the world and stuff, but what is uh, something in your in your next kind of phase of life that you're excited about? Well, I, I have this this obsession, this obsession that... If, if we if we really want to create a better healthcare system, the two things have to change, and and the first one we talked about, mm -hmm. the incentives have to change, yeah. but also I believe there's so much data that can be turned into tremendous new insights. Mm -hmm. You know, data about yourself, um, which which I'm constantly analyzing. So I've done a full. Um, you know, a series of full tests, you know, blood tests for biomarkers, genetic tests, uh, strength tests, ultrasound, and then, you know, I, I prefer my Garmin to, uh, to the Apple Watch. It's and, better. And, uh, but also I believe nutrition uh, is hugely important, and, and we're only at the beginning of that. So I, I think, number one, by creating your own personal insights, you can improve your own outcomes. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to, to sickness, like, you know, my daughter's type 1 diabetes, I, I think technology can play a tremendous role in helping her deal with her disease, get to a yep. better place. I also believe that technology, biotech, will help find a cure for the disease. I'm, I'm yeah. convinced about that. And a lot of the finding that cure will have to do with uh, applying AI to mm -hmm. models of the disease and uh, models that uh, get fed by real life, you know, real world data. Yeah. And so my my dream is that you create this 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 platform that just feeds the data into it from all these sources, you know, imaging, blood mm -hmm. tests, mm -hmm. uh, and that allows you to find those patterns that can improve your own personal situation, but that can find new ways to treat disease, manage disease, prevent disease. Mm -hmm. And I I know it's there. Uh, I just don't see anybody, except you know Mayo Clinic, who puts one billion into it. But this is the biggest opportunity I think Europe would have, because the health data Europe has is way better than the U.S. Yeah. because it's optimized for litigation and reimbursement, <laughs> yeah. not for clinical outcomes. Yeah. If we found a way to basically apply big technology to this problem. And, and I think we can, and I think we should, and I think we will. It's a good note to end on. Jeroen, thanks a lot for being on the show. It was really My amazing My pleasure. On. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys.